This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, November the 27th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, there was a big diplomatic Newfoundland and Labrador. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will share some of the takeaways. The Canada Disability Benefit is taking shape, as Canadians can suggest what it could look like. Kelly Braun-Johnson will share some of her ideas. I've got a couple of ideas as well. And the Netflix biopic, Nyad, tells the story of a swimmer attempting to get from Cuba to Florida. Amy Amanti will offer up a review. That and much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. Today's top story, not the hardest news story in the year, not not hardcore journalism going on, but I do think it's an interesting way to start your Monday because there are going to be a whole bunch of packages arriving on doorsteps over the next few weeks, and a new FedEx survey shows that porch thefts have gone up in the last two years. 28% of people say a package has been stolen from them. James Anderson of FedEx Express Canada offers a bit of perspective on the issue. Enterprising criminals have found opportunities to swipe packages from people's porches unsuspectingly and it's unfortunate because anytime this happens it's impacting families ability to get those that holiday to-do list done and just start enjoying the, the joyous of the occasion. Only 7% of people reported a stolen package to police. Anderson says people really should reach out to local authorities. When I would call the police and say I'm a victim of a of a package theft. It's theft. I can't answer, emphasize enough. It's it's a theft, and you've been a victim of, of a crime. And uh, you know the police do want to hear from you on this. Anderson says you should also reach out to the merchant to let them know about the stolen package. A few other pieces of advice. Check delivery notifications. Don't leave your stuff laying out there on the porch. Set delivery instructions or redirect the drop-off location to a pickup center if you know you're not going to be home when the package is supposed to be delivered. You can also get lockboxes on your porch designed for deliveries that use a numeric code to get in. In fact, if you have a porch, that's the one that I recommend the most. Not everybody's got a a front desk where packages can be dropped off. I remember in my old condo building, uh, just any individual delivery and courier could just go drop off a package in front of your door in the hallway I never had a hallway theft to deal with, but it was always bizarre, and you could always tell who on the floor was doing the most shopping based on a pile of packages in front of their door. Okay, let's get on to something a little bit more serious. It's not necessarily new news, but there are some fresh allegations about how social media giants are exploiting young people. Donna Warder takes a closer look. 
The complaint, described in reports from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, says that Meta had received millions of complaints about underage users of Instagram, but only disabled a fraction of those accounts. The lawsuit was filed in late October by the attorneys general of 33 states and originally was made public in redacted form. Company documents cited in the complaint describe several Meta officials acknowledging that the company designed its products to exploit children's impulsive behavior and susceptibility to peer pressure, and acknowledge that Facebook and Instagram are popular with children under 13 who, according to company policy, are not allowed to use the service. In a statement to the Associated Press, Meta says the complaint misrepresents its work over the past decade to make the online experience safe for teens. I'm Donna Warder. And one more story for you, and this one is sort of from the good news file, or at least interesting policy that could yield positive results. Some of the leftover food from grocery stores in the United States that used to go to landfills is now being donated to food banks. Tiffany Wong has the story. Food that goes into the garbage and to the landfills worsens global warming by releasing the greenhouse gas methane and takes up a lot of landfill space. While leftover food from grocery stores donated to food pantries feeds hungry families. Store manager Sean Rafferty at ShopRite of Elmsford Greenberg in New York says thanks to laws passed by the state, food donation programs have surged over his 40 years in the industry. Years ago, everything went in the garbage, everything went to the landfills, uh, the factors, wherever it was. Now, over the years, so many programs have developed where we're able to donate all this food. New York's program is in its second year, and as of late October, the program had redistributed 5 million pounds of food that equals 4 million meals. I'm Tiffany Wong. The reason I played that story for you is because this isn't simply a case of generosity. Right? This is legislation put in place that changes the context, that says, hey, business or store, you must do this. You must donate this wasted food or this spoiling food or this food that's about to expire to food banks and food pantries. Right? This isn't the goodness of their hearts at these companies and businesses. Oftentimes, you need to do legislation. Think no further in the technology world of Apple's decision to abandon the lightning cable in favor of USB-C charging. This was not them doing that for you as a customer. This was the European Union passing laws insisting they do so. So I played that story for you because that's a really good idea. What are grocery stores doing with leftover food and where can that go other than a dumpster or a landfill? But you can't just sort of say, oh, you should do that. You need to compel these kinds of businesses to do those things. Okay, let's get to the Daily Polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Friday, you were asked, are you taking part in Black Friday shopping? 0% of you said yes in store. So 0% of you wanted to shove somebody. 14% of you said yes online, and 86% of you said no. Today's Daily Poll is all about the National Disability Benefit. Consultations are underway for the National Disability Benefit. What is your biggest priority in the benefits design? The amount, eligibility criteria, ease of applying, or other at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. This topic will come up with Kelly Braun Johnson in about 20 minutes on the show, but I want to start the conversation with Alex Smythe this morning. Alex, 
it seems to me that unless you get the amount right, the actual dollars in people's pockets, the rest is a little bit moot. But I would say all of these things need to be priorities, but I would drill down on just making sure the amount is adequate. Hands down, Dave. I, I completely agree. All of these uh, different uh, options are, are valid, are important, are essential, but the amount is what trumps all. That's really the heart of this. How much are people actually going to be able to access as part of this disability benefit? If you don't get that right, well, then the entire program is going to be flawed. It's going to be another one of those uh, kind of disability programs out there that, oh, it, it, it helps supplement it. It helps support in some way, shape or form, but it doesn't really get at the root issue. And we've seen this with other pro provincial programs, other federal programs. So get that amount right. Get that yeah. pricing right. Have it tied that you really solve the issue you are trying to address with this. And then the rest of it will fall in place, even if eligibility is a bit murky, even if the ease of application may not be as accessible or whatnot, at least there's something you can build off of. If, if, if the price is too low, if the amount is too low, well, then you're, you're, you're gonna have issues really attracting people to get it. People are gonna sign up, but it's not gonna be the same level as enthusiasm. It's not gonna really solve that issue you're trying to address with yeah. the Canada Disability and, Benefit. And it's worth, it's worth mentioning here because the federal government has been extremely clear about this. The National Disability Benefit is not meant to replace provincial supports. It's meant to supplement mm -hmm. provincial supports and to help and assist people with disabilities who are living in poverty. Now, what living Absolutely. in poverty means can be a little bit of a distinctive feature, and that's something that Kelly Johnson and I are going to talk about a little bit in 20 minutes or so, saying, hey, this, this might not be something simply limited to people who are on provincial services, but I keep coming back to the dollar amount attached to the CERB, the Canada Emergency uh, Revenue Benefit, right? The, the one on during the course of the pandemic, and that was sort of the government of Canada identifying that $2,000 a month month is sort of the needed revenue to live in this country. And by the way, that number is still quite low, but at least at that point you start talking about a tangible goal to say that, hey, the average, the average disability benefit in Canada is about $1,000 to $1,300 a month, depending on the province that you live in. Again, there's some machinations here, but just for the sake of simplicity, it's about $1,000 to $1,300. So at that point, is should the goal on this benefit be to get everybody up to about $2,000? And by the way, that's still not necessarily enough, but at least at that point, you're building, you're, you're starting from somewhere. You've got a building block and you've got a target. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the, the important thing is, as you say, like getting people to at least $2,000. So making sure that every single province, territory, any provincial a plan or support allows the uh, the applicants and, and those eligible to get to at least that threshold of $2,000. You, you laid out the great point that, you know, you base it on something that the government of Canada already has come out and done an existing program with CERB with the amount that they already generated. So if, if they don't reach that amount, if they don't kind of identify that, then that that is a, not only it's a missed opportunity, but it's also shows that there is a major disconnect to the value and uh, the impact that financial assistance for folks with disabilities uh, are experiencing if, if you're going to provide that amount for other people within the country in a time of need. So yeah. I, I think I think that's where you really need to make sure that that ident you identify 
the the amount and you you link it to other programs that already exist like you you had laid out yeah there's got to be a goal here it can't just be a willy-nilly i will share a couple points of contact during my conversation with the kelly braun johnson in regards to uh where you can do your consulting and where you can offer up your opinion uh there, there are going to be a number of different ways. There's email, website, phone number, et cetera. I'm going to share a bunch of those points of contact a little bit uh, later. But for now, if you want to chime in on the poll, you can do so at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on Twitter, or feedback at ami.ca is the email address feedback at ami.ca or pick up the phone and give the show a ring 1-866-509-4545 that's 1-866-509-4545 coming up after the break canada played host to a summit with european european union leaders last week michelle mcquig from the Canadian press will share a couple of the takeaways from the big meetings in Newfoundland and Labrador. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca. back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Top European leaders, European Union leaders, were in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador last week. The formal summit with Canadian leaders yielded some positive conversations. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. Welcome back. Michelle, nice to be back. Nice to talk to you. So what's the big takeaway from this summit? So the big takeaway, this was a very, very palsy summit. Uh, lots of love, lots of mutual admiration and, and nice warm comments back and forth between Canada and the EU. Uh, some invitations to get involved in some interesting sounding partnerships. Um, so this was a very, very friendly, warm and fuzzy kind of summit. But the the interesting takeaway, I think, is that this may not remain the status quo. Um, the current dynamic between them, which is as positive as can be, is dependent a lot on the political players involved, a lot of whom are set to change in the coming years. So a lot of the announcements that were made are based on the existing current dynamic uh, and, and seem quite promising. Remains to be seen, though, whether they can be either whether they can be implemented and whether or not this kind of dynamic will will survive the change yeah. of players that's likely to come through in the next couple of years. That's right. Whether it's actual changes inside the countries or within the block itself, because there's a lot of exactly. different elements going on there uh, in terms of the geopolitics of the continent. What were some of those alignments, some of those strategic alignments that were at least identified in broad strokes last week? Sure. Well, a, a big one that I find quite interesting is Canada has now been invited excuse me, officially invited to join a thing called Horizon Europe, which is a massive, massive research fund for European countries with a budget of 95.5 billion euros. That's a lot of money. Mm. Um, Canada has been invited to join that network, which would give us access to that same kind of funding for research, uh, which would give us uh, access to the European research networks. That stands to be a, a big boon for a lot of researchers. Lots of it, it focuses on a lot of green initiatives. That's the primary target of Horizon Europe. Uh, so that would be very much in line with the current government's climate policies. Uh, certainly would be a very exciting opportunity for researchers here. 
So that was a big one for sure. Uh, there was also talk of potentially getting involved in green battery initiatives with, with the EU. Uh, there's going to be a, a bit of a fund announced at the COP summit that's coming up later this month or next month, I suppose, now in Dubai. And uh, Canada has now been invited to be part of that. So it was largely focused on innovation and, and green and energy tech. Uh, your, the EU was touting Canada's ability to provide materials for uh, for electric vehicle batteries, for instance, because we're the only one of the only countries with all the raw materials in place. So some of those partnerships focus on that as well. So those mm. were the, the the main thrusts of the big announcements. It, it's a partnership that makes some sense uh, between the EU and Canada, generally speaking. It was You have to go back to the Harper government days when the broad strokes of a European Union uh, free trade deal, deal was struck. Now, that's that's hit a couple stumbling blocks along the way, uh, mm. basically because uh, the EU said, uh, you know, uh, countries leave, like England, for example. Like England, yeah. <laughs> uh, Like England, for example. <laughs> I'm not sure if you remember that drama. And then, of course, you know, like wars breaking out inside their borders. So uh, they've yeah. got some other concerns that have made the, the completion of that deal to be a little bit complex, but you can still see where there's a strong desire in terms of both sides developing these relationships on the on the European to Canada side, natural resources, and from the Canadian perspective, just access to more markets, densely populated markets. And that goes back to sort of this um, political alignment that you've heard the current government talk a lot about, looking for like-minded trade partners rather than just big trade partners. Exactly, and that's where things get a bit interesting because right now, that definition suits the EU to AT. They're very much aligned. Uh, the European Parliament right now is not particularly protectionist. They're they're very okay with international partnerships, as is the current Canadian regime. So they're very much aligned in terms of not only their desire for those kind of partnerships, but the sorts of partnerships that they want to execute. Uh, where things might get a little more complicated is when some of those players start to change. Yeah. So there are EU parliamentary elections set for next year. And a lot of the experts are warning that this could mean a significant shift, depending on how things go. We've seen a number of more far-right governments elected in Europe. We know there's a certain amount of pushback against the EU. Uh, the, one, the way one pundit that my colleague Sarah Smelly spoke to put it was that there's cracks emerging in the EU's defenses against far-right ideology. And that could be reflected in Parliament when those elections happen next year. And Ursula von der Leyen, the current EU president, may not be able to hold on to her position. Mm -hmm. So when that happens, uh, that's one of many factors that could start to change the the Canada-EU dynamic. Um, some would depend, too, on what happens here domestically and presumably yeah, 2025 no when the next yeah, election no might doubt. be. Yep. Yep. So that that's, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, and another potential wild card, of course, is uh, the United States, always uh, kind of a shadow player in this relationship. If uh, if Donald Trump, let's say, were to be reelected next year, which is in fact a possibility, uh, that's another one where pundits and historians have pointed out that during the first Trump presidency, Canada had a certain buffer in the EU in terms of partners and, and those who were more ideologically aligned than he was. Mm -hmm. If you have different players in all of those three countries, then that dynamic is sure to yeah. be transformed, not just changed, mm -hmm. like radically, radically different. Well, Michelle, that is diplomacy and high-level geopolitics. Let's get to something a little bit more local, moving on to something out of yes. Montreal. <laughs> Montreal bar and nightclub owners are asking the city to revisit noise bylaws. Now, it's more than just the bylaws, Michelle, but what's at issue here? What's, it's an interesting one, actually. My, my colleague Thomas McDonald did a nice job with this story, just highlighting how 
old bylaws can hinder urban development and neighborhood vibrancy and the music scene. Uh, so this was all looked at through the lens of small music venues. Uh, he led off with the anecdote of a, a bar that's not known to me, but residents of Montreal might know Turbo House. Dave, I assume you do too. Mm, no, I don't run in those circles anymore, Michelle. Fair, fair. But anyway... <laughs> Um, so this is a club that 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 moved. That put in all kinds of money into soundproofing. They're even paying three thousand two hundred bucks a month extra to keep the two apartments above the venue empty to mitigate noise complaints. And they're still facing them. And the the message from these music venues like Turbo House and many others is that Montreal has super outdated bylaws that don't reflect changing neighborhoods. That don't allow for mixed-use neighborhoods that discourage music venues from being in areas that, that would be a little more residential, even though there's lots to suggest that that is, in fact, quite a good model for, for urban sustainability and diversity. Um, so they're calling for a totally different approach to Montreal's bylaws to allow these music venues to survive, because a lot of them say that they are not able to keep up. The noise complaints favor the, those who make the complaints. They have no real means of recourse. Um, the, the application of them is pretty arbitrary. So they, they have mm. a lot of issues with the current system. Like you said, Michelle, this is a story about urban development as much as it is about sort of individual noise complaints on bars. For a long time, the Montreal scene, this is where I do run in these circles, you tended to have main drags and residential around the main drag. But as mm -hmm. density is starting to become more and more popular, and hey, a street like Montreal is a desirable street to build some apartments on, or Sherbrooke Street, or St. Catherine Street, or even, sure. even, even other infrastructure fills in the downtown core so what used to be deeply deeply bar oriented and club oriented areas that were sort of business during the day and nightclub at night are starting to become more residential so that's where you start getting into this idea where this is what really jumped out to me in the article saying you need to put some sound mitigation uh, rules into your building code and that really fascinates me as a concept to say hey we can still build apartments over bars and we can still build condos around bars and nightclubs but you have to have something in your building standard that says we don't want to leave this new resident susceptible to blaring music all night because by the way the bar's still going to close at three in the morning because that's like that's what makes montreal montreal that's what we do yeah exactly and that's that's a really good point and that is exactly what they're calling for is that that kind of fundamental change and they point to the fact that it is in place in other cities uh, like Toronto, which is not often held up as a beacon of much. But uh, this is one case where they're saying Toronto has implemented what they call an agent of change principle into their standards and building codes. So that does allow for people to account for pre-existing conditions when making new ones. So in a, in a time when we have the current housing crisis and we're desperate to find places to build, to, to, to accommodate an expanding population, uh, mixed-use neighborhoods, like what you're describing is the the opposite of the old Montreal set up with with very clearly delineated residential and, and commercial activities. Um, Mixed-use neighborhoods would be a good way to start tackling the housing supply issue. And to do that, there's so many changes that need to be made. We've talked about infrastructure needs, but this noise, this bylaw aspect is a whole other piece of the puzzle. 
Yeah, well, because you know what the flip side is here, right? It's that you're going to start getting rid of bars and nightclubs and the things that give a community a texture. Now, listen, there was yep. a housing crisis. To say nothing of the economic impact of that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, like, like yeah. there is a housing crisis, and that needs to be dealt with. But the answer is not just a bunch of giant glass condos and a bunch of retail stores on the main floor, right? Like, like there needs exactly. to be – you yeah. need to make sure that a city still has some fun built into it. Just because just you have enough houses doesn't necessarily mean people don't want to have fun. Exactly. And and frankly, the, these small music venues and small cultural spaces proved to be launching pads for major, major Canadian acts. So that has that, that helps to shape Canadian culture more broadly in cases like this. Yeah. yeah. The kind of music venues that, that uh, Thomas spoke to for the story have, I've, you know, they used to play host to lesser known bands at the time, like Arcade Fire, for instance, mm-hmm, it wanted to be huge. Mm-hmm. So like, there are all kinds of economic and cultural issues tied to what seems like a, a small Byzantine piece of a noise bylaw, but no, <laughs> the, the ripple effects are are, are real, and it, it is the foundation for for much bigger issues. Michelle, thank you for always helping me think fondly of my old hometown. I appreciate it. <laughs> Anytime, it's a great town. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, consultations are underway for the Canada Disability Benefit. So, ideally, what should the benefit look like? Kelly Braun Johnson has some ideas, and so do I. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Consultations for the new Canada Disability Benefit are underway. The Government of Canada wants to know your thoughts on eligibility and the benefit amount, uh, amongst other things. The consulting period is open until December the 21st of this year. You can do it online, over the phone, or by mail. For the sake of simplicity... Here's the phone number, and I'll give this out again at the end of the segment. It's 1-833-390-4065. That's 1-833-390-4065. Ultimately, the question is, what should the Canada Disability Benefit look like? I have thoughts. So does Kelly Braun Johnson. Kelly is the founder of Completely Inclusive. Hey, good morning, Kelly. Nice to chat with you this morning. Yes, I have a lot of thoughts about this as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are about a million threads to pull out here, Kelly, but let's put our minds together and see if we can build some consensus, starting with the amount. I'd argue the amount should be somewhere around $800 a month, basically enough to bring anyone on a provincial disability support anywhere in the country up to $2,000 of monthly income. I know it's probably not enough, but what do you think of that number? So aside to this, I'm also a huge proponent of universal basic income, and that's pretty much $2,000 a month is pretty much the amount that has been kind of bandied around. Um, And it's it's also the amount that was given during CERB during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I really think this is a basic amount that, that we should probably be starting with, at least that. In terms of eligibility, this can get a little bit tricky. But what if the pure starting point was anyone who is either eligible and on the federal federal disability tax credit 
or a provincial disability support program? So I have a lot to say about the disability tax credit. Um, I think it's problematic in its application. So um, going back in time, I was actually at the House of Commons on November 30th of 2017 uh, when I was on the board with Autism Canada and we were protesting the issues with the DTC at the time. Um, we had teamed up with Diabetes Canada and MS Canada as well because there was a huge number of people who were making applications and getting rejected. So things like diabetics being forced to prove that they still need insulin in order to survive, um, that amputees were having to prove that their limbs had not magically grown back. Um, and, you know, it sounds absolutely wild and ridiculous, but this this is what's actually happening to real people. Um, and, of course, we have autistic people that are still uh, having to reprove or to prove that their autism hasn't been cured over the course of their lifetime. And then if we look at provincial um, programs, they're not all the same in terms of their criteria. And so I always joke that my son is autistic in Canada, but not in Quebec, because in Quebec, even though he has the same diagnosis, the same person, uh, he's not considered sufficiently disabled. Um, and then aside from that, we also know that at least it was 64% back in 2017. The, the numbers have probably been updated a bit, but it's around somewhere around 70% of people actually who are el eligible do not apply for the DTC just because it's too complicated. Mm. Um, it costs too much time, too much money for them. Um, and they're also scared they're going to get rejected as well. So using the DTC as, as our base is, is problematic. And we need to have changes in that, I think, first. Okay, you know what, Let, let's talk about that for a second. I think you identified them a little bit in that answer, but what are those barriers that makes that DTC eligibility process so onerous? Or maybe even putting this more broadly, Kelly, the way in which applying for any kind of disability benefit becomes too onerous. And, and we'll circle back to some of the specifics of the benefit in a second. Mm-hmm. So the basic application for the DTC is, is around 20 pages. Um, and so not everybody has to fill out all those pages, depending on what disability you have, that's fine. But there's there's it's a very long process and there's very little nuance when it comes to things like uh, mental health or developmental disabilities. Um, so then you have to find a doctor who is going to be willing to work with you on this. Um, so you have to make an appointment and we know with doctor shortages that can be very difficult to get an appointment with your doctor especially if it's a non-urgent case you say hey can i have you fill out some forms um they're not always very sure about what to write and what the formula to use is to to express it properly um so they'll charge you for that time often um you're also having to compile all your specialist forms um all your diagnoses your whole medical file um, and that takes time and often they'll charge you as well for access to your file. Um, so there's time and the, the money barriers. But then you're sending this medical file to the CRA, to the Canada Revenue Agency, right? And they're not medical doctors who are reading this. These are tax agents. And I'm sorry, but there's nowhere that this should be making sense because they're reading it as accountants, essentially, um, with the idea to discredit you, to mm. see that if, if you're lying, that we're lying about our disabilities or making up our disabilities, we're, we're having to say that we're, you know, uh, how disabled we have, we are. And it's, it's, it's something that to me just, it doesn't make sense. Right. Um, there's so many barriers. 
um, it's it's a it's a it's a process that most people will give up on at some point through the through all the challenges. I, I know this might be a, a million dollar consulting idea and maybe you don't want to give it all the way uh, give it all away here on the air but what does a more streamlined process look like that might alleviate some of those uh, tax agent concerns but also maybe shift the burden or uh, an undue burden away from the person with a disability from the from the applicant so I think if we if you step back a little bit, um, in the case of an acquired disability, um, we need to look at this from from a proactive sense because once most of the time, a lot of the costs that are coming to the government in terms of healthcare, um, in terms of the economical value of people losing work, missing work because they're seeking a diagnosis because they are in the in the in the process of either uh, acquiring an illness or a disability. Um, all of that, there's a lot of trips to the hospital usually that occur before somebody gets diagnosed. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a lot of time, a lot of personal costs and a lot of just economic costs in terms of the loss that we have uh, when people are not able to work because they're in that process of seeking a diagnosis. Um, and so if we were to funnel that money uh, into a proactive system um, that would then support somebody's quality of life in a, in a, a quicker way. And then in the case of people who are born with a disability, I think it's even simpler because you're, you're, you're doing proactive support on somebody. So that is going to prevent further uh, societal issues and strains. So if we streamline it where I don't, I don't know exactly, but maybe a medical professional would be able to send that diagnosis directly to the CRA upon diagnosis, and then it's in the file, immediately initiate funding. And there's, there shouldn't be a reason for people to be, for, for the CRA to come back at people and say, hey, are you, are you really sure you had cancer? Um, are you really sure that you, um, you know, you, you, you've had an organ transplant? Uh, could you go back to the doctor and, and have us reprove that? I, I like the I, I like that idea that you're putting forward because whether that's whether it's the bureaucratic level inside the hospital. I mean, I, I don't know the last time you went to the hospital, but the last time I went, uh, there was a lot of bureaucracy that had to be done. There was a lot of paperwork, and there were a lot of bureaucratic points of contact that I made. So it definitely makes sense there could be a bureaucratic process there. I also wonder about the possibility of the CRA having their own specialists in house to make it a little bit easier to make direct appointments, and those could be digital appointments or over the phone appointments with a specialist to talk about this, right? Like who, who specializes in the DTC application. So it might be a little bit more of a collaborative effort rather than having to run through 45 pieces of paperwork just to, just to be rejected down the road. Yeah. I, I would love to see something like that. We, we do have nonprofit organizations that kind of facilitate, uh, but that's still not direct with the government. Um, yeah. If they had some case where, yes, we could do a video call and you could show your diagnosis or um, I'm not sure what, but to maybe humanize it a bit. I like that idea, uh, but not make, not make it lengthy, not make it more complicated, um, but also not look at it with the lens of people who are just trying to scam out money, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and understand that people who are disabled really are disabled mm -hmm. and, and people don't fake being um People don't usually fake being um, ill. They they fake being well mm. most of the time. 
Kelly, we, we took a detour there. It was an important detour because it was all from that lens of eligibility in regards to the national disability benefit. And like I said, it can get a little bit murky. But going beyond sort of this, this base point, which even the base point you didn't like, the disability tax credit or provincial supports, what about the idea of expanding it for people beyond that? Understanding that living in poverty with a disability might still be the case even if you have a job. I wonder about some kind of sliding scale that says you're going to continue to receive some or all of the benefit even as you make uh, up to a certain income, maybe $50,000 a year. Again, I'm throwing ballpark numbers out here, but but maybe getting back at this, uh, this problem that's been identified a couple of times of government clawbacks of benefits when sort of a single dollar of income makes its way into the life of a person with a disability. Yes, I mean, that's a huge issue where, where people can't have savings, they can't have a certain amount of savings in their account. Um, but you, you were mentioning like just reaching, let's say, 50, 50K a year. And and so I, I just wouldn't want it to be capped. That's my only my only issue. I, I'd rather see a minimum quality of life rather than a cap because non-disabled people don't have their income capped. So let's try and keep something that is that allows for that potential um and that we we know also that many people are already living below the, the poverty line right and and that to me is unacceptable so let's not penalize people for working um and let's put more value on their humanity and the value of the of the person and just their right to live and have their basic needs met um and some people with their disability and even with all the supports may not be able to work so i don't really want to put the focus on on that and how much they can work or how much income they can possibly make. Um, I just feel that everybody has should have that right to comfort and a life of ease um, regardless and have that basic minimum met. Well, I'm not going to fight with you about this morning. That that this morning, that's a, that's a statement that uh, it's hard for me to disagree with. Kelly, thank you for this. Thank you so much. And um, I have a lot to say. I haven't filled out my my um, my uh, feedback form yet, but uh, I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can tell. I can tell. There's going to be uh, there's going to be a thought or two in that one. That's Kelly Braun Johnson, founder of Completely Inclusive. If you want to share your thoughts about the benefit with the federal government, I'm going to give you that phone number again: one eight three three. 390-4065. That's 1-833-390-4065. There's also the opportunity to chime in online via email or via regular old snail mail. But for the sake of simplicity, because the link is pretty darn long <laughs> on some of those points of contact, the phone number, one 390-4065. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe will have the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter John Kennedy with your Morning Business Minutes. Canadian investors are hoping to see a positive push upward after stocks closed out Friday with mixed results, while U.S. markets were closed for the Thanksgiving long weekend most of last week. On Friday, the S&P slash TSX Composite Index closed down 13 points to 20,103. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average had closed up 117 points to 35,390. The S&P 500 Index was up 2 points to 4,559, while the Nasdaq composite was down 15 points at 14,250. The Canadian dollar is trading at 
73.36 U.S. compared to 73.41 cents on Friday. The January crude oil contract was down $1.56 from Wednesday's close at $75.54 per barrel. The December gold contract was up $10.20 to $2,003 an ounce. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm John Kennedy. Thank you very much, John. Let's turn to the world of weather with Alex Smythe. Alex, a bit of uh, winter weather in the GTA. Yeah, you know, we're starting off this uh, week by exploring a multi-day uh, snow system heading for uh, much of southern Ontario, Dave. So uh, you can expect even starting today, there's going to be conditions like whiteout conditions for the Muskoka region, basically anywhere uh, west or east, I should say, of Georgian Bay and Lake Huron. You can expect some, some snowy, windy, blistery uh, conditions with that. There's also going to be a significant impact on commuters and, and drivers are to take extreme caution or even change their plans because of these whiteout conditions from snow squalls in the area. Now, this system is going to linger because it's actually a polar vortex that's currently situated over the Great Lakes, especially around Lake Huron and Georgian Bay. So what that means is we're going to see parts of southern Ontario, so from the London area, anywhere in between Lake Huron and Lake Ontario, you could see upwards of 20 centimeters of snow by the time the system is done by Wednesday. That even means the GTA, Dave. So Tuesday, we may be seeing some, some snow in our neck of the woods. So the, the Golden Horseshoe right around Lake Ontario, we could see some dusting of snow, not as bad as the kind of the middle of the province, but still enough that we're gonna experience our first taste of winter. On the positive side though, come Thursday, Friday, the conditions lighten up, the weather goes back into above normal temperatures, so that snow is not gonna be too long lasting, at least in our neck of the woods. Thank you very much, Alex. That's Alex Smythe with a look at what's going on in the world of weather. Coming up after the break, the Netflix biopic, Nyad, tells the story of a swimmer attempting to get from Cuba to Florida. Amy Amanti will stop by with a review. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. If at first you don't succeed, you can brush it off and try again. But how many times would you try something only to fail each time? That's the question posed in the biopic Nyad. Here's a clip from the trailer. Diana Nyad, world champion marathon swimmer. The swim I want to do is 60 hours. That's Cuba to Florida. Absolutely not. No, 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 no. That's insane. Diana, you tried that when you were 28 and you did not make it when you're 28. You're 60. I don't believe in imposed limitations. The only one who gets to decide if I'm through is me. Diana climbs up to a pool deck. Official selection at the Toronto, Telluride and BFI London Film Festivals. Okay, just a little swim. Diana jumps in, feet first. 
It's 100 miles or 60 hours of constant swimming. A boat escorts her across open water. But what I'm most afraid of is sharks and man of war. I just know I can do it, and I couldn't do it without you. All right, okay. I'm... Oh, oh, oh. Wrapped in towels, Diana howls as her friend smiles. What you want to do has never been done. I mean, especially not for a woman, especially not for someone your age. Amy Manti is an entertainment critic, and Amy has a review of the Netflix film. Hey, good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dave. Amy, why did this film, Nyad, spark your interest? Why'd you hit play? Um, well, I think originally I hit play was because when I was watching the trailer, first off, I haven't seen Annette Benning and Jodie Foster in anything for a little while. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what are these two up to? Um, because I'm a big fan of these two actors, uh, award-winning actors. And um, originally, that was why I had wanted to watch this film. I'm not a huge fan, to be honest with you, about sports biopics, because sports and me are, eh. I know you're a bigger sports fan than I am, Dave, but I, I often, for, for the sports genre in me, I, I just find them too literal. Um, so I was a little bit to sort of wary going into that. But I thought, well, if Annette and Jody are doing it, maybe, you know, Maybe I can tolerate it for two hours. I, I do want to get into Annette Benning and Jodie Foster in a moment, but let's talk about Diana Nyad, the swimmer mm -hmm. themselves. What did you know about Diana Nyad before you started watching this? Absolutely nothing. I'd never heard the name before. Nothing. Okay. Uh, no, zero, zero zip, zero, zero. zip to not. I've, I've, I've got my, I've got my blank spots out there uh, too, Amy. I, I can't, I can't know about yeah. everything, and some of these things uh, do miss my radar. Okay, let's yeah. talk about Annette Bening and Jodie Foster. Uh, probably two of the best actors of their generation. Academy Award nominations, Academy Award wins, a few of the most important movies of the last forty years. Absolutely. How would you rate their performances in this movie? So here's the thing about biopics, right? Um, you are you are essentially becoming a character who is a real person. So that's a whole different level of trying to um, uh, encapsulate who that person is. So instead of trying to develop a character, you're doing a study on a real human being. And if the human being is alive, then you have access to that human being. And so your stakes are actually a little bit higher um, because your your authenticity is you're being you're being measured on a on a different measuring stick, if if that makes sense, um, because the world has seen footage of Diana Nyad. Certainly, you and I haven't seen footage of Diana Nyad, but the world has seen footage of Diana Nyad, right? And so um, the world would see these two, um, Diana and her and her best friend uh, Bonnie, and they would know. Oh, yeah, okay, that's that's what I've seen them in, like in films, and and that's right. So. Um, I would say based on some of the uh, scenes that I have seen, there's a whole bunch of uh, scenes at the end of this film that capture their the, the two of them together in real life, um, that there's a pretty good representation in terms of how Jodie Foster and Annette Bening have captured the essence of these two humans in real life. And that is super impressive and takes a whole different level of acting chops, a mm. whole different level of letting ego go uh, to do that kind of work. What I think about that, capturing the essence, it's difficult yeah. enough to try and replicate somebody else. How about trying to replicate chemistry of people who are de dearly close friends? Like, that can't be easy either. Well, I think, you know, Annette Bening and Jodie Foster are friends in real life, so that chemistry already exists, which I think is part of why the casting of the two of them it feels 
feels good for the for the watcher. So I go in already feeling like the two of those folks are solid as humans outside of being air, air quotes characters, right? Mm. Um, so you feel kind of safe with these two, even though they, there isn't a perfect relationship between these these two, as we sort of see in the um, in the trailer here. Obviously, uh, you know, Diana needs to convince her bestie that this is a thing because her Bonnie is not a swim coach by nature. Mm. Um, you know, she's a retired coach. Racquetball was her area of expertise, uh, quite accomplished in racquetball, but you know, swimming is a whole other thing. Um, and so you're, you're talking about taking two folks out of retirement um, and asking them to do thing something that has never been done before. You mentioned that sports biopics don't do it for you, but I heard just a glimmer of admiration yeah. for biopics more generally in your last answer. Where do you land on biopics? Yeah, you know, generally I very much appreciate biopics. Um, they give me an opportunity to learn about things in this case, I've obviously never heard about this story before. Um, and I very much appreciate that. Um, I like to learn in any film that I watch, you know, I, again, in some films, you know, they're purely for fun. But if I can get an opportunity to learn something, whether it be historical fact or, you know, something like this, which is uh, obviously really interesting to know about our, um, you know, not even pop culture, but just stuff that happens in terms of women's movement and all sorts of things. I really appreciate that where I don't know uh, where I don't know is where truth separates from fiction. Right. Right. Because in any biopic, you know, they have they always call this poetic license. Where does that creep into any of this storytelling? And as the watcher, somebody who doesn't know the story at all. But in general, we don't know really where the truth and the sort of artistic license yeah. intersect with each other. And that's a really hard thing to sort out unless you're super familiar with a story unless you know a ton about the source material. That's where I'm always leery of a biopic that simply portrays the lead character as a protagonist um, yeah. without flaws. I, I, I've, I love the music biopic genre. I'm big, big fan, and that's one of the reasons why I really liked the Johnny Cash biopic with Joaquin Phoenix. It's why mm -hmm. I really liked the Elton John biopic a couple of years ago, and maybe wasn't as in love with Bohemian Rhapsody because it really didn't get into the flawed person that was Freddie Mercury, whereas right. the Cash documentary, uh, Walk the Line, and uh, the Elton John documentary, oh goodness gracious, uh, they yeah. came out of that those 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 biopics looking awful. Yeah, well, certainly if you're if you're looking for a flawed human, Diana Nyad is a flawed human, and the ego on this woman, the way she treats people um, with this, uh, you know, my poop don't stink kind of attitude, um, is very like. It's very prominent. Um, and does she become humble in the end and, and kind of say that? Because, you know, you're depending on a team of folks who are, are you know, she's the swimmer, but it takes a team to do this kind of work, right? Yeah. And as you pointed out at the beginning in your intro, how many times do you fail before you say, that's it? You know, we've done this however many times. You know, when do we say enough is enough, right? She didn't complete it when she was 28. Um, does she complete it now? You know, somebody could Google it and find out the answer or you could watch the film and yeah. find out the answer. Yeah. How many times does it take before you say, okay, we've done this enough times or how many times does it take before you, you know, give up the ghost, right? So, and you've got a team of folks, right? How many times do you put them through that, asking them to put their lives on hold for no money, you know, on, on a dream, on somebody else's dream? Yeah. 
So when do you become humble about that? And when, when are you a jerk about that? And she's pretty much a jerk through the whole thing. A Amy, you mentioned uh, a perceived link between some themes here, the story and the women's movement. What was mm -hmm. that link that you put together? Well, I think for me, there's a, a, a strong case here for, for the women's movement. Um, oftentimes, I think, um, well, you know, we, we talk about this a lot, Dave, in, in women's circles, and I suppose in any circles, but I just sort of pointed out that Diana Nyad is a jerk throughout this film. And she is, in all intents and purposes, treating other human beings not very nicely. If she was a man, doing this very same task she probably wouldn't be perceived that way but because she's a woman she is going to be perceived in this way um but i think what's nice to note about this is that um she is attempting something that has never been done before and the way she is doing it is in a really empowering way her way about it maybe um you know maybe needs a little bit of a humble check but i think um what has inspired this, because this all takes place at, sort of in the modern day context in around 2014. So it's relatively recent history when you think about it, in terms of, you know, how we um, empower young women, especially since she's swimming to Cuba. So there's a lot of uh, younger women in countries other than, um, you know, America and the USA that are being empowered by this kind of thing that another woman is doing. And I think that that really says a lot for women around the world and what kinds of things can be achieved. So that is not lost on me when we watch a film like this, especially when we think about um, feminism and ageism. Mm. How did the audio description stack up? The audio description was quite uh, was quite good in this particular one. Um, there were some moments in this particular film where Diana uh, starts to hallucinate. As you can imagine, if you're swimming for hours and hours and hours on end in the open ocean, um, that that may start to happen to yeah. somebody. And yeah. So there were these moments where, um, you know, you had to, uh, the audio description had to, to distinguish uh, what was being interpreted in Diana's brain as, you know, fact versus fiction. And we had to be able to keep up with, with what was happening. And so I thought it did a, a, an admirable job of making sure that I was kept in the loop about what was happening and when it was happening and following along on this, this journey that was happening both internally and externally, um, which is really important in a story like this. So I, I thought the, the audio description did an ad admirable job um, in biopics. It's again, biopics are kind of a, they're a tricky thing with audio description. I think sometimes audio describers don't really know what to do with that genre. Do you recommend Nyad? I would say, yeah, I, I think Nyad is, is, is a, a good, uh, uh, I think it's a great I think it's a great film for a lot of reasons uh, for folks to check out. So if you're interested in the sports genre, if you're interested in the women's movement movement, or if you just want to see what Annette and Jody have been up to, I'd hit play on this one. Right on. Amy, thank you for this. Thanks, Dave. That's entertainment critic Amy Amanti. You can find Nyad on Netflix. In one minute, Alex Smith will have the entertainment report. But first, there are no shortages of opportunities to shop online. Maybe today's a bit different? I don't know. Mike Dubusky has Cyber Monday thoughts and tech trends. 
Cyber Monday has almost become an extension of Black Friday itself. Valentina Palladino is the senior commerce editor at Engadget. She says despite the fact that many Black Friday sales have lingered through the weekend, Cyber Monday may still hold some surprises. We have in the past seen some particularly good laptop deals on Cyber Monday that we did not see on Black Friday. Well, that remains to be seen this year if that will happen again. But like Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales might not actually end on Monday. Retailers really want to kind of get people in and get them shopping, even if they're not able to do it specifically within the 24 hours of Black Friday or Cyber Monday. So we definitely have seen the shopping period extend because of that. Consumers are expected to spend a record $12 billion on Cyber Monday. They spent $9.8 billion online on Black Friday. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Not quite that much money at the North American film box office, though, Alex. The numbers are in, especially because you expanded over the American Thanksgiving weekend. There's a lot of cash being flown around, and Dave Packer has the numbers from this weekend at the theaters. After folks finished their turkeys, they moved on to songbirds and snakes. See how quickly civilization disappears? The Hunger Games prequel at number one for a second weekend, making another $42.5 million over the extended five-day Thanksgiving period. The Joaquin Phoenix starring war epic Napoleon, the surprise number two, scenarioing around $32.5 million. And number three, a disappointing debut for Wish, the Disney centennial animated feature falling short of expectations, taking in just $31.7 million over the Thanksgiving weekend. Trolls band together and Thanksgiving rounding out the top five. Dave Packer, ABC News. Yeah, so Dave, this is the time of year where you start to see those prestige movies or, or the award bait movies, as they're often called, start coming to theater. So things like Napoleon, these big epics. For instance, I saw on the weekend a movie, Saltburn. One of my, it's by far my favorite film of the year that I've seen, but I doubt anyone's heard of it. Including so me. It, including it was, me. What's Saltburn? Exactly. Honestly, I, I didn't hear about it until I saw the trailer right before going to see the movie itself. That's how kind of niche it was. But phenomenal. I, I also think, too, this is kind of the first time it feels like the in the post-pandemic, post-strike era that you're starting to see these these box office uh, kind of uh, hits start to make their way back into theaters. Yes, you saw you had the Barbie Heimer explosion during the summer, but that seemed to be very much one off. Now it's becoming more consistent. So uh, I want to start with, are you surprised by the fact that the Hunger Games recaptured top spot in the box office and not Napoleon? Uh so Hunger Games, I believe, is intellectual property that people are still interested in because even though there were four movies in the original series, it never felt oversaturated. I think people felt the story was compelling and all four of the movies were pretty good. And people still loved those books, right? People really liked those books. And I think there was an appetite, pardon the pun, for more Hunger Games content. And especially because the Hunger Games was set, whatever, it was 25 or 30 years sort of after the apocalypse, after the fall of society, I think people were kind of interested to get more of that immediate post-apocalyptic feel in their content and their storytelling. So Alex, I've got to confess, I'm not surprised that this movie is doing well, especially because it's familiar intellectual property that hasn't been oversaturated. I think it's been about six or seven years since the last Hunger Games movie came out. And it's uh, the, pre the, the the trailer looked good. Like like I've seen I saw the trailer a bunch of times going to see a bunch of movies this summer, and the trailer looked good. Like like trailers still matter. You, you just said that about Saltburn. Oh my gosh! Like yeah. the trailer can get you into a theater. And, and more than that, uh, from what I've heard from people I've talked to who've seen it, 
the movie is actually really good too. So if you're like that also sells it. And to me, that's, uh, I, I think a bit of uh, what really give that a, a boost at the box office this weekend, because the early reviews from Napoleon, Dave, were not very, mm, uh, mm. very good. And they weren't really selling this epic that uh, comes from Ridley Scott. And a lot of it comes down to the historic inaccuracies with Napoleon and it's kind of becoming a bit of a trend for Ridley Scott too. So yeah. people really want to spend three and a half hours on a movie that's not really going to be accurate at the end of the day. I, I still I still kind of want to go though because Ridley Scott I is know. one of these filmmakers that I still dig a lot of the stuff that he makes and Joaquin Phoenix is such a great actor. And listen, Napoleon is a story that has not necessarily found its way onto the big screen particularly often. So I, 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 like, I'm probably going to be one of these folks who goes. I know I say this a lot. I'm like, I want to see this movie. I want to see that movie and then i never see any of them but but like i'm gonna make an effort in these next couple of weeks alex yeah absolutely dave before i go i want to just get a quick way too early prediction of the movies you've seen so far give me one prediction come award season for me i think barry keegan in saltburn deserves really high praise for his acting he should be nominated for best actor that is a bold prediction because very few have seen the movie but if you do see it you'll see what i'm talking about i'm racking my brain a little bit on this one alex so i'm just going to steal something from our senior producer andrika delanerol i really hope that come award season people don't forget how good blackberry was uh whether it was mm. the acting performances or the storytelling blackberry was phenomenal and i and i hope that uh, it receives some recognition uh come award season sorry andrika i'm stealing uh, one of your answers <laughs> alex thank you for this Thank you, Dave. That is Alex Smythe with the Entertainment Report. Coming up after the break, the Parapan-American Games are in the books. Brock Richardson will stop by with a final update on some results from over the weekend. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca, amiplus.ca. Don't forget, you have to spell plus out, P-L-U-S. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, November the 27th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, is artificial intelligence ableist? Stephen Scott will share his coverage of the TechShare Pro Conference. And the Parapanam Games are officially over. Peter Parsons reflects on Canada's goalball program following the competition. Speaking of the Parapanam Games, let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. So Brock athletes are on the way home from Santiago, Chile with a little bit more hardware starting in the cycling world with friend of the show, community reporter Nathan Clement picking up a little bit more in terms of medals in the cycling world. Yes, he won a bronze medal in the mixed T1-2 road race. So this is uh, very good. I had an opportunity to uh, interview Nathan uh, when I was at the Canadian Paralympic Committee Summit, really wonderful guy, and I know he uh, 
means something to your program as he's a contributor. So I thought I would highlight that one uh, first and foremost. Yeah, big congratulations to Nathan. A gold earlier in the week, a bronze later in the week. That uh, feels pretty good. But that wasn't the only hardware when it came to cycling, Brock. No, it was not. We also added a goal with Mel Pemble, who won the gold in the women's 3,000 C1-3 individual pursuit. Pursuit 3,000 meters. That is a long race. Uh, that's that's quite a bit. So congratulations on that medal there on the uh, road cycling side of things. So they seem to have a really good weekend this weekend. What about another well-decorated Canadian in the world of wheelchair tennis? Uh, it, it, this one, I was really sad how much he wasn't on uh, CBC Gem. And I'm talking about Rob Shaw, who won the silver medal in the men's tennis quad singles tournament this uh gold medal match was on uh obviously but uh he just we didn't have a lot of his event and i love watching his game and uh watching the way that he plays he's very quick and very confident so congratulations to him on the uh, silver medal if we move on to the uh field uh this one's a bit of a personal one for me renee fassel has won the bronze in the women's discus F38 category. Renee is a, a lady who grew up with me in the Cruiser Sport organization, and I'm really glad to see her have a, a great event there as well. So that's good. And I do believe that we're wi- or could be winding down on Renee's uh, career as she might be wrapping it up oh, oh. after this next Paralympic Games, but it's not yet official. Just Rumor has it. Oh, rumor and innuendo. Look at that. Brock uh, doing a little bit of journalism on us uh, this morning. Uh, Brock, what about another racket sport, badminton? Uh, Olivia Mayer, uh, Mayer has won the bronze in the para badminton women's single SL4 uh, tournament. So that's really great. Badminton is another one of those sports that you need a lot of agility for to uh, be successful. So congratulations on that one as well. And then switching over to the uh, some of the team sports, you were all over the wheelchair basketball results uh, last week and into the weekend as well. Yes, I was. Uh, the Canadian men take home the bronze medal, and uh, this is an important victory because it qualifies them for the last chance tournament later this year. Uh, they needed to win the bronze medal in order to qualify for that event as because they didn't win the gold medal, they didn't directly qualify. So that's what led us to need them to win the bronze to qualify, which adds a ton of pressure uh, later this summer. But uh, we'll see how it goes. On the women's side, we know that they took home the silver medal against the uh, as they lost against the United States, and uh, they will also be part of the last chance tournament on the women's side later this summer. What about the goalball courts? Uh, Peter Parsons of Blind Sports Nova Scotia is stopping by in about 40 minutes to uh, reflect on the performance of the Canadian goalball teams. But what are the results here? Uh, the results are very, very positive on the women's side. They uh, qualified for uh, the games in 2024 for Paris as they defeated the United States and and uh, took home the gold medal. This was a really great game to watch, but I'll let Peter uh, dissected a little more in detail. On the men's side, they maintained their bronze medal as they defended it uh, and and got the win in, in the bronze medal game, so that's good for them. But sadly, we will not see a 
male representation for goalball in Canada, in Paris. So uh, that's a little bit of sad news there. And what about uh, your old sport of boccia? Uh, yes. So let's start with the BC one and two team, which is a team of uh, three on three. So uh, they had a really, really outstanding beginning to their tournament. They were undefeated in their first uh, three games of the tournament. And then they ran up against Brazil in the final, who they beat earlier on in the tournament. And they just came up a little short. And they will also have to go to a last chance qualifying tournament later this summer. Uh, my father is a coach of this team, so I was uh, a little bit sad as they were so close, but uh, didn't quite get over the hump. So hopefully they can uh, they can take it home uh, when we go to this last chance tournament. Uh, if we look at the BC4 uh, category, which is two on two, so we're looking at Allison Levine and Yulian Chabanu. They took home the gold medal, and with that, they solidified their spot in Paris. And they are now world number one in the BC4 category pairs uh, uh, event. Uh, so this is good for them uh, going into the season. And uh, Alison Levine, listen, she got the uh, great honor of being the flag bearer for Canada going into the closing ceremonies. Only three other athletes have done that at either a Parapan Am Games or Paralympic Games. So in the sport of bocce. So this is... Uh, Really good feat for the sport, and I watched the, the video last night of her going into the stadium, and she loved every minute of it. So uh, very, very good for the sport of bocce. But they got six uh, total medals between individual and uh, team and pairs. So the, this is a good event for them, all told. Yeah, I saw Allison post on uh, social media about uh, being named flag bearer, and uh, she seemed pretty... Um, Pretty overwhelmed by the moment, in, in a good way, like not in a bad way. She seemed like it was such an honor for uh, her to be named uh, flag bearer. And my goodness, what a performance in Santiago, Chile for Allison heading into a Paris next year. Okay, Brock, let's zoom out here on the medal count, just starting with the Canadian numbers, but then I want a little bit of context on where that ranks. Yes. Uh, so if we look at the overall count, we had uh, uh, nine gold, 15 silver, and 20 eight bronze for a total of 52 if we zoom that out a little bit and look at the the uh total breakdown of this we had brazil who had uh 343 uh medals but also i put an asterisk beside this because they had over 400 athletes between all the sports wow so it is a bit of a numbers game when you think of that uh, uh and then the united states came in uh second just just below Brazil uh, on the numbers as well. If we break this down a little bit further, and this is the kind of thing that kind of gets me annoyed about these events because Canada uh, finished eighth behind Chile and Cuba, respectively, uh, but they, but both of those nations that I just named had less medals than Canada, but because they both had more gold medals, they then get the higher seed. But Canada would have got uh sixth if they just went on total number i don't love the fact that they put more weight on gold i get that first place is the thing you want to achieve but a medal is a medal is a medal and i think we should be looking at the grand total and not putting more weight on the gold medal but that's just me so no matter how you slice it though it's a top 10 finish for a team canada at the pair of pan am games would you call that a success yeah i think i would i i had predicted that they were going to get in and around uh 
60, 65 medals. The year the Para Pan Ams before this, they had 60. I thought they were going to get a little more than that. I think the there were some events that had uh, not as many medals as you would expect. Swimming only had uh, just just above single digit or double digits, which isn't normally what you would see. So I think that's sort of where we we could have got a few more medals. But overall, yes, I think the Canadian Paralympic Committee is very satisfied with the result. Hey, Brock, thank you for all the coverage on uh, the Parapanam Games. I know there was uh, lots to keep track of, so thank you for it. You're welcome, and it was fun. That is Brock Richardson. He's at the AMI Sports Desk coming up after the break. Is artificial intelligence inherently ableist? Stephen Scott will explore that question in his coverage of the Tech Share Pro Conference. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Accessible technology charity AbilityNet held its annual TechShare Pro conference earlier this month. Stephen Scott took part in some of the activities. Stephen is one of the hosts of Double Tap. You can find that show daily at noon Eastern time on AMI-audio. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Dave, how are you today? I am doing well, Stephen. So you had a chance to interview Mark Walker from AbilityNet during the course of the conference. He offered up some thoughts about inherent ableism in artificial intelligence. How does he believe AI is ableist? Well, this was one of many discussions that happened at TechShare Pro this year. And for those who are unaware of it, and it is a very UK-centric conference, to be fair, uh, but it is a European conference, essentially, to gather together minds when it comes to accessibility, companies that are involved in accessibility and all of that. So it's a really great opportunity to, to delve into very specific themes. And this is very much aimed at the, the business world. Because what they're trying to do at AbilityNet is talk to the the world of, of business to try and say and then explain, uh, you know, why accessibility is so important, why these companies should focus on it. And AI, of course, was part of that conversation. The ableism part was really interesting because I watched a talk which was discussing this idea of ableism in AI. And, of course, you're right. What, how can AI, how can a computer be ableist, right? But it can be ableist in the same way, I guess, as it can be sexist or racist. It depends always on the information that's put into the system. And there have been examples given, and there were examples given at the conference, of people who were you know, asking questions about, say, blindness or disability generally, and were being told that, you know, for example, a blind person couldn't do a certain job or wouldn't be able to do this, or you know, maybe we shouldn't ask questions about disability, or maybe we shouldn't even use the word disabled. And of course, this raises a lot of questions, but of course, it's not the computer itself that's the problem here. It's the information that's being fed into it, and that can create a situation that can make AI ableist. 
Yeah, if artificial intelligence or a large language model like ChatGPT, for example, is scraping the web for information, well, what exists out on the web? Sexism, ableism, misogyny, racism, all of these things exist yep. in web spaces. So if that's the issue, if scraping data that is containing either a flawed idea ideas or um, even unrecognized biases. What are the solutions being put forward to address that issue? Well, part of it is about engaging with organizations and engaging with business to think better about disability. So, of course, that's the focus of the conference, right? It's about specifically disability. And, you know, even as simple as using the word disabled, <laughs> it seems to me, I hear this all the time now, I hear people saying, you know, I'm told not to use the word disabled, I'm told to use differently abled Ugh. or, you know, some other version of it. And it's just like, just use the word, right? I'm disabled, you know, I'm blind. I can't, I, I can't help that. <laughs> I'm not going to try and come up with another word to just make someone else feel comfortable. That's not really what my purpose in life is, nor it should be for anyone else. So I think it's about having a conversation with people first, because ultimately it is what's being scraped off the internet. Now, some might argue the damage has been done because the information is already out there. Can that be adapted? Can that be changed? I guess it can, but it is about really going back to first principles and having serious conversations with businesses and organizations and promoting accessibility and disability. And, you know, just use the word disabled, guys, come on. <laughs> okay, I didn't realize we were gonna get into a conversation about uh, first, in, uh, first person language or per, uh, person first language or uh, disability <laughs> labeling here, Stephen. So you know what I'm gonna do? I'm actually gonna move on because we'll be here all day if I tell you the stories. Oh, I know, we've been talking about that all day, right? Uh, my gosh, the first time somebody told me that I couldn't use the word vision impaired, the strip that I cut off them, yelling at them, I was like, that's my word, it's my disability, I will use what word I want. Yeah, absolutely. I, I got called out on the internet recently by a blind guy who told me I wasn't blind enough to call, to call myself blind. Oh, uh, oh. And I did a whole bit about it on the show. And I, honestly, I just, I, I cannot believe sometimes the ableism that is faced within our own community. And this, of course, all feeds into the internet, right? If that conversation's happening on social media, if that's, if AI's picking up on that, that's, what, that's the data it's scraping. So we have to be very aware that everything we do online is going to reflect in the AI world. Yeah. So, okay, I said I wasn't going to dwell, but you know what? Why not? Why don't, why don't we dwell on this? Because media representation and technology, that intersection is something that you and I are perpetually talking about, whether it's on the air here mm -hmm. or uh, a million other places in our life. So in this conversation you had with Mark Walker, you talked a little bit about technology and improving media representation. Where does he see tech as being a player in improving media representation? So Mark did a fantastic job, and, and he did an incredible job actually chairing a number of talks at AbilityNet's event this year. And this is what he does. He will chair the conversations. And he is he's not disabled himself, but he is very keen to get the voices of disabled people heard. And one particular voice on this, on this panel was a woman called Shani Danda. Uh, now, she is from the UK, and she is uh, someone who speaks a lot about disability, and rightly so, as she is disabled herself. But she talks about uh, this media representation. She's very lucky in, in, in the sense that she gets a chance to get onto these big like, UK morning shows and stuff and, and gets a chance to talk about all of these issues, which is fabulous. 
Uh, and when she does that, she talks about the fact that we must get disabled people, and I thought this was really key. In her talk, she said, we've got to get disabled people onto television, but not just talking about disability. Yes. And I think that is really key. Now, look, for some of us, it's part of who we are. And, you know, in some ways, I think it's like, I almost imagine one day there'll be a David Attenborough documentary about blind people. You know, here we discover this unusual creature that seems to appear every so often in our streets with a white cane or a guide dog and, you know, presents itself to the world and then goes away again. And no one really knows how it got there and how it got back. Um, and, you know, that's, that's kind of, I think, the problem in society that we're so unseen that every time we have a conversation as a disabled person, it's always about disability. It's always about our identity. It's always about those things that's always brought out to the front. And what she was saying is we've got to get past this. We have to move past this point. And there have been a couple of examples in the UK on television where a major BBC drama had a disabled character in a lead role uh, playing a lawyer. And the focus was on her as a lawyer. It had nothing to do with disability. It wasn't about her disability. She just happened to be disabled at the same time as being a lawyer. Yeah. And there's no crime in that, from my understanding. So it was really interesting to hear her talk about this. And I agree. I've, I, I make jokes about, you know, we have a big soap opera here that I know you guys know, Coronation Street. And I'm like, why is there not, not, not a blind serial killer in there? Why, why is there just not that happening? Because why not, right? Why couldn't that be the case? What are you saying? I couldn't be a serial killer? That's another conversation. But, you know, I just think it's, it's really, we've got to have, we've got to look past the disability. And that is exactly what Shani was making the point about. She was saying, look, look past it. That, because media representation can therefore become, well, we've talked about disability, and we had a disabled person on last week to talk about it, so we don't need another disabled person yes. anytime soon. And suddenly, one person gets on screen for a week, and you don't see another disabled person for another month or two. Yeah. That's not good enough. It's, it's representation via tokenism. And again, to simply say, oh, there's a disability exactly. concern. Here's a person with a disability. Stephen, here's where maybe I'll pat your back a little bit and hopefully you might scratch my back a little bit as well. I think that's something that you and your show, whether it be uh, Double Tap Daily or whether it be Access Tech Live, you do such a great job of talking about technology through the lens of someone with a disability. You're not talking about disability through the lens of technology. You flip the reversing, right? I've been thinking about someone like Amy Amanti, our entertainment critic. She's reviewing movie field, not as, not as sort of saying, here's how a blind person watches movies, because there's a big exactly, difference yeah. in terms of how you do that and the importance of platforming points of view that are representative of individuals with disabilities, rather than simply saying, here's what disabled people think about disability. Yeah, there's always a danger in that. And I think it's partly because the conversation hasn't quite matured enough yet in the mainstream to allow for that to take place. So even at the moment, if you have disabled people talking about television, for example, you'll have a bunch of blind people in a room talking about the audio description on Netflix, you know, drama, All the Light We Cannot See, and everyone's talking about how great the AD was and how great the music was and the audio mixing and the sound, and oh my goodness, wasn't Hugh Laurie's voice amazing and all of that stuff, right? And, you know, all that is brilliant. You know, that's a very different conversation to, in some respects to what the sighted world would, would have. And therefore, the sighted world aren't sure what to do with that conversation because yes. they feel so separate from it. It's very difficult to, to merge the two, but the truth is that we just have to have these conversations. This is why I think podcasting is such a great thing, because it democratizes 
speech. Now, we forget free speech for a second. It just democratizes speech. Mm-hmm. It allows people to have a voice that perhaps an organization or a network, you know, a, a big network like CBC in Canada might not have a whole show dedicated to disability, you know, unlike this fabulous network we have here at AMI, right, that just does it all day. Um, but, you know, the other networks don't have that. And, you know, every week when I do Access Tech Live and we talk to all these amazing people and we talk about disability and we have people on who are, who are disabled themselves talking about their experiences, I always say at the end of the show, this is the only show on, the, on planet Earth that is doing this on television. No one else is doing this. And it's the same across AMI. It's why I stand and shout about AMI so many times to people because I'm like, guys, this, this network is representative of disabled people, but not just about disability. It's about people living their lives as disabled people. And that's the, that's the thing we need to replicate around the world. I say AMI for president. It's a, yeah. uh, Prime Minister, thank you very much. Stephen, Stephen. Oh, <laughs> hey, Stephen, uh, thank you for this. Always a pleasure catching up. Have a lovely day. And you, Dave. Thanks a lot. Take care. That's Stephen Scott. He's one of the hosts of Double Tap. You can find that show daily at noon Eastern time on AMI-audio or download the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. And you can follow the Double Tap team on Twitter at Double Tap On Air, at Double Tap On Air. Coming up after the break, is life getting so expensive that you can't have fun? No, I don't mean that, like, is your rent so high and are the groceries so high and is the gas so high that you can't afford to have fun? I'm talking about the fun itself. That's the question that Alex Smythe wants to bring to the roundtable with myself and Nizreen Abdel-Majid. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You always hear me yammering on about inflation and the cost of living, and I'm here giving you these numbers about food and rent, gasoline. Well, there's more to the cost of living conversation than just the basics to live. Alex Smythe, you want to talk about the things that offer up a little bit of fun. Yeah, Dave, and I want to uh, introduce a term that some people may not be familiar with, funflation. This is a, a term that's been kind of getting more and more uh, traction over the last uh, little bit. And so for those who don't know, funflation is the idea of the cost of entertainment and things that are fun have exponentially mm-hmm. increased over mm-hmm. the last few years. So uh, for a bit of context, you know, after the Black Friday sales were done, I was underwhelmed by them. So I was looking for something fun to do on the weekend. So I started to look around what was available. My first thought, why don't uh, me and my girlfriend go bowling? And then I looked up the cost for the bowling alley in my area. Dave, it was $60 per hour oh my gosh just rent the lane not including the shoe rentals or anything else just the lane itself was it was it disco bowling at the very least or was it just regular old bowling well i i think this one yeah it was like the glow in the dark bowling uh for for that uh, okay okay. for that time so at least it's a bit fun it it makes it a little better but still it's pretty devastating and then we we settled on uh, i also looked at uh, looking to see you know what Let's enjoy the millennial tradition. It's getting into the Christmas time. Let's go get a photo with uh, Santa at the mall. 
Dave, the cost to get a, a photo with Santa at the mall, $40. No longer free for you to go and no. just get your photo taken. No. $40 get, no. For you to sit on another man's lap is going to cost you 40 bucks. At least. It, oh uh, it varies depending on the mall and then to get availability. So we settled on a night out at the movies. And then uh, for a couple to go see a movie nowadays, $50 you're typically going to spend one when you get your tickets and then you get a drink and a thing of popcorn. Needless to say, I'm just shocked how expensive everything has gotten. And it's almost to the point that I'm wondering, is it too expensive to go out and have fun anymore? Nizreen, what do you think of this? Is it too expensive to go out and have fun? It is. And, and when I hear the cost of taking pictures with Santa, I'm like, this is where Photoshop comes in handy. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh yeah it's 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 insane i mean my husband and i we were every night we kind of think of ideas of what we can do um every week to kind of just go out have fun but it's again crazy expensive like we don't want to do the traditional dinner go home kind of thing um the other day we went to the arcade and it was so expensive it was so expensive and and i get it some arcades are you know uh beyond you know just the just the bowling pin or whatever like some some are adventurous and and really unique especially in toronto but i still feel like tokens used to be the cost of nothing back then and now i'm like okay maybe we should go our to the arcade every few months like and, and call it quits kind of thing um at the end of the day, it's it's just way too expensive to go out. So we kind of kind of uh, fiddle around and and try to come up with something at home. Yeah, it's one of these things, Alex, where it feels like a bit of a champagne problem when you're saying, oh, it's too expensive to have fun anymore. But I do think it's an important acknowledgement to know that life is not simply about waking up, eating, going to work, going home, eating again, and sleeping, right? Like, like the, the entire point of humanity since our existence in civilization was to make art together and listen to music together and feast together and do things together. So it's not simply a champagne problem to say, oh, it's too expensive expensive to go to the arcade. It's like too expensive to do almost anything, right? Talk to a parent whose uh, kid is in competitive hockey, for example, who's spending 10 or 15 or $20,000 a year to have their kid involved in this hobby. Uh, listen, escape room, mini putt, bowling, mm -hmm. 100 bucks out, like, out the door. Like, like my, my new feeling is anytime I'm going to go out into the world, no matter what I'm doing, whether it's going for drinks or whether it's going to a movie or whether it's going uh, just for a quick bite somewhere, I know that basically a minimum of $50 is going to subtract itself from my wallet, quite literally. Yeah, and and so like I, I started to think about, because a lot of the things used to be, even if it was less expensive when we were younger, half the stuff used to be free. Like this, the photos with Santa used to be free Shocking. back in like the, the 90s and early 2000s. But again, even like beyond just this season, you think about apple picking or going to an orchard. Those things used to be free activities and you would have to pay if you, you got some of the fruit from them. Now it's there's cover charges because everything has been commoditized to, to really cater to the the generation that were kind of in the millennial gen gen z generation where it's like oh well you want to go to this place take some photos well that's going to cost you 15 20 bucks 
in order to do it. So I, I think that's really where that challenge comes from. It's like, okay, it's one thing to say, oh, you know, going bowling or going to the movies are more expensive. Going to a concert is so expensive. Oof. Yeah, but even the stuff that used to be readily available is no longer there without having to dole out some yeah. cash to do it. Nazreen, I think about someone like yourself who's so musically inclined that in theory, creating music should be low cost, but uh, 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 you gotta buy instruments, you gotta buy mixing software. There's all kinds of expenses that go into it. Now, those are a little bit more of like an investment or a sunken cost, but nonetheless, like even something that you might've traditionally thought is something you could do at home over for fairly low cost. Nah, man, that's coming, that's money coming out the front door as well. I mean, yeah, I, even even the den that I'm working out right now, I have to have to kind of fix it up to make it more um, like good quality. So um, just buying soundproof uh, stuff like the the sponges, the I have to get carpets and whatever. It costs a lot, and even to go to a recording studio, oh my gosh, costs so yeah. much yeah. per hour, so much. So I'm like. Okay, singing is gonna be a little um behind here and there. So uh let's let's back up. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's way too much. It's way too much to to go to these places. And and I kind of understand, I kind of understand you're using really proper equipment. Um actually, some of the recording studios don't include the mic. That's so don't include the equipment. <laughs> so it's just the room itself and not just some, but a lot of them. I was looking through and they're like, oh, you have to bring your own equipment. I'm like, so what's the room for? Yeah. You're all, you're literally buying, you're literally buying some glass. You're buying, you're buying a sealed soundproofed room and some glass. Mm -hmm. That's what you're, that's what you're renting time for. Uh, Alex, let's try to end this on a little bit of a positive note though, because obviously here we are a bunch of millennials and Gen Z's yelling at the clouds, talking about how it used to be as we all transform into our parents. Something that you can do for free that's awesome. I was in Ottawa a couple of weeks ago and my niece and I went to the park together and we played on the swings and we played on the slides and we chased her dogs around for a little bit. It was such a great day to just go to the park and play on the swings and I thought that was lovely. Alex, your favorite thing to do that's free. Yeah, this is one that's really been kind of growing the last little while is even checking out the local libraries because the thing yes. is they, they have so many hidden, neat little services that are available. Oftentimes free, there are some that may be very specialized that they'll do certain like wood cutting classes or, or like, you know, etching or 3D printing. They're a bit more, you know, um, high tech, so they'll cost a bit of money, but there's so much there at the local libraries that are just included with the price of your, uh, with included with your membership. It's free. It's one of the last places where you don't have to go in expecting to pay money, Dave. It's definitely underutilized, especially in today's era of funflation. Mm-hmm. Nizreen, what about you? Something that you enjoy doing that's actually free? Mm -hmm. I would have to say um, in the wintertime, it's tough. I, I thought about this over and over and over. There's not much to do in the wintertime and and on top of that even when there is something there is uh something to do it's really expensive but in in the summer i'd say yeah, as you said like the park is the best thing i love picnics i love just taking like home food cutting it up cutting up fruits and whatever and just taking a big picnic basket and and then making it a nice date um there is hiking there's so much to do in the summertime so please 
if you guys have more ideas, throw it at me in the wintertime. You know, Alex, this is maybe a little bit of a Toronto thing. This came up in the conversation with Jenny Bovard and Megan Gilmore last week about winter activities that are uh, low or no cost to keep you busy and outside in the winter. It's tough in Toronto. When it gets cold and slimy and gross and snowy, yes, there are some pretty cool green spaces around, but it takes a journey and a mission to get there, even if you just want to go for like a winter hike outside. Absolutely. And, you know, there are certain certain parts of the city, like even like I, I think close to the office, like the, the Don Valley uh, trails near the office are beautiful. I used to live near there. There's yeah. some fantastic walking trails in and around that area. And then you have the Scarborough Bluffs that are pretty close by that have some great views. But not, I, not super easy to get to, though, from here. Not super easy to get to. And and so that that's a challenge. You know, it's like once you get outside of that downtown area and get into more of the auxiliary areas, like out where I am near Burlington, Hamilton, a lot of great walking trails you know you can access the Bruce trail in certain parts so yeah there are cool. options but it's just it's getting to those is still yeah. that 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 hurdle we have to get yeah. over and that costs money too Alex thank <laughs> you for this Nazreen thank you as well that's Nazreen Abdelmajid and Alex Smythe coming up after the break the pair of Pan American games are in the books Peter Parsons will reflect on how Canada's goalball teams did at the competition. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Parapanam Games came to a close on Sunday. Peter Parsons was paying close attention to what Canada's national goalball teams were up to in Santiago, Chile. Peter is the chair of Blind Sports Nova Scotia. Hey, good morning, Peter. Good morning, Dave. Peter, let's break this down on the men's and women's side. Brock Richardson, as part of the sports update a couple minutes ago, laid out that Canada's women's goalball team captured the gold medal over the weekend. I saw that one on CBC. I also saw a highlight posted uh, by CBC on social media after the game was over of the players crying, tackling each other, hugging each other. I know you weren't there, but I feel like even through screens and speakers... What was that vibe like? What was that vibe like watching Canada's women's team capture that gold medal? It was amazing, Dave. It was like knowing the the girls, being friends with them. Um, two two of the girls, uh, Emma and Megan, who I coached back in 2015 at the World Youth Games when they won gold medal against the U.S. in Colorado Springs. Um, so to watch them achieve that, and with veterans like Whitney Bogart and Amy Burke who uh, this could be like their last Paralympics coming up that they just qualified for it. It was such a long road for them to qualify where they came so close at world championships last year. And uh, it was, uh, you know, only, only the winner of this tournament with top teams in the world, like U S and Brazil, only the winner of this tournament was going to win. So watching the game, it reminds me of watching, uh, you know, a game seven in the playoffs, your favorite hockey team, you get nervous with that two goal lead, the one goal lead and just watching it and then for them to win. And like you said, Dave, the emotion, um, seeing them, 
seeing the tears of joy, you know, the the day before, I remember watching them beat Brazil in the semis, which was a huge win and and so happy for them. But at the same time, you see the Brazilian girls, um, the, the agony of defeat going yeah, on with their yeah. tears, you know, and you just feel for them. But um uh, with the Canadian women, it, yeah, it was it was awesome. It was it was um, you know, I think it ranks right up there with like one of my favorite sporting moments to watch. Peter, it's it's the emotion like that is the reason why I watch sports. Like like it was so compelling. I think I watched that video that CBC put out like four or five times. I, I'm still getting like the tingles down my spine thinking about it right now. Yeah, I know it was great. I I uh, I had to I had to share that with uh, with my uh, blind sports group and say, yeah, watch this eight minute highlight light video to the end. Um, so so much emotion in it. Uh, I think you know it just uh, it gets you uh, it gets you fired up watching yeah. something like that. <laughs> so so you mentioned that they've now qualified for the Paris Paralympics. So what does the women's team road look like between now and next summer? So, yeah, it'll be a lot of training. Qualifying for Paralympics brings more funding into the program. It's it's huge. Um, so there'll be a lot of, uh, you know, the thing about Canada being such a big country um, to get together uh, sometimes is a bit challenging getting, getting all the team together. So I think a lot of uh, training camps and competitions to prepare because there's only eight teams that qualify for Paralympics, which is why it's so hard to qualify. So it's going to be a very, um, very tough competition. And of course the goal is to be on the podium in in Paris. And so I think they're, you know, all in for that. Switching to the men's side, the men did take home some hardware. They picked up a bronze, but what's the vibe on that, that particular performance for the Canadian men's team? Well, it was nice to not come home empty-handed winning that bronze medal on Friday, but Thursday, the game against USA in the semifinals, um, the winner of that game qualified for Paris and the loser was not going to qualify. And so it was very disappointing not to qualify. That was the whole goal, right, was to to qualify for for the Paralympics, uh, Paris 2024. Um, you know, the, the guys uh, rebounded nicely to to win the bronze medal against Argentina, um, which was a which was a good win um, and not easy, to, not easy to to do when you know your Paralympic dreams were just crushed and you come back the next day and and they uh, pulled it together and had a good game and come back with uh, with the bronze medal so for the men's team it's now a totally different Paralympic cycle what does it look like for them not so much looking forward to 2024 but 2028 yeah so for 2028 we're going to be in a, a bit of a rebuilding phase for sure um, we have a lot of good young players coming up, including a couple of that I coach here in Nova Scotia, Harry Nickerson, who we talked about before mm-hmm. on the program. He's a phenomenal athlete. Uh, Griffin Hiltz, who's 18 years old. Harry's only 14. Um, so come 28, they could be a part of that team in LA. Um, and, uh, you know, where the U.S. will be, the U.S. will be hosting, of course, so they'll have a spot. Brazil are world champs, and um, I don't see that ending anytime soon they're pretty dominant in the game as seen in the gold medal game at in santiago when they mercy ruled the u.s in the wow. gold medal game wow. so you know um that's two spots there so it's po- it's possible that um canada could qual- qualify in 28 like even 
being third in in our Pan Am region um, because the U.S. being host and Brazil qualifying through being world champs potentially, right? That um, and so it's going to be uh, a lot of uh, tournaments coming up. We have the um, junior world championships coming up in 2025 and again in 2027, which, like I said, Harry, who I mentioned, will be a part of those teams. I think that there will be a lot of, uh, you know, training camps and and just taking a look and uh, with bringing uh, some of our younger players up. Yeah, the, the, the future the future looks bright, but there's a lot of hard work between point A and point Z here for uh, for the national team. Peter, you've been talking a lot about the people that you're coaching and the influence you've had on folks, but you were actually an alternate uh, for the men's team. If something had gone haywire, you would have uh, sent yourself down to a Chile to fill in for somebody. What's that process like for you? How do you how do you keep yourself prepared for that call that may come on a dime? Yeah, you know, it, it's uh, it's a, one of those situations where you have to um, keep training hard, stay in top shape um, to be ready for that call if possible. You know, um, we were in France back in September and there were eight of us um, and we knew we'd be going down to six after that tournament for Pan Ams. And, you know, it's disappointing not being in that six. There's only six people on a goal ball team. So um, then it's a matter of regrouping, supporting your teammates and, um, you know, training hard, being prepared. Um, one of my te- national teammates, as well as provincial teammates, Mason Smith, who's, uh, you know, 24 years old and really uh, bright, has a real bright future, a big part of, of our future of our program, along with the younger guys coming up. Um, you know, he, we're training here back on our, on our home court in Nova Scotia, helping, helping him get prepared as well. So, which keeps me very highly motivated as well to keep training hard, um, in case, uh, you know, I get the call with a couple of weeks notice or something like that, but, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, watching, uh, closely, closely and sending the guys messages yeah. uh, being there for uh, like in support. Yeah. Peter, only about 30 seconds on this one. Obviously the physical preparation is one thing, but what is that timeline? Like if somebody, if they called you on 48 hours notice, do you think you would have the fortitude? Uh, would you've had the fortitude to be able to do it? I don't actually think that um, it would be possible with like 48 hours notice because of a lot of the logistics, uh, the, the logistics to it. Exactly. But uh yeah, I, I we do have a mental performance coach as well that I that I had talked to um, beforehand, uh, um, and this being one of the scenarios, which which is helpful as well. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something that can be uh, can be uh, probably more challenging mentally than physically. Although I feel like you know I feel like I was ready to go. Well, you're an experienced veteran at this. There's no doubt, Peter. Thank you for this. Thank you, Dave. That's Peter Parsons. He's the chair of Blind Sports Nova Scotia. That's all the time there is for the show today. Things kick off again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. 
Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.